All right, this is the UFC Fresno post-fight special. My name is Luke Thomas. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, if you want to know more about UFC Fresno, which just ended, of course, from Fresno, California, this is the place to be. But spoilers are headed your way. Not merely about that event, but if you did not hear, we're also going to talk a little bit about Vasily or Vasil Lomachenko uh, and his match tonight with Guillermo Rigondo. So if you don't want to know anything about that, you have to avoid spoilers. Sign out. You have five, four, three, two, one. Okay, here we go. Like I said, my name is Luke Thomas. I'm the senior editor at MMAfighting.com as well as the host of the Luke Thomas Show on Sirius XM um, Rush Channel 93. Thank you guys so much for joining me. I greatly appreciate it. We're going to get to UFC Fresno, a little bit of talk about Guillermo Rigondo and Vasil Lomachenko. But I want to say, number one, well, I thank you for watching. Please do me a solid. Subscribe below. Like this video. I, it always is a huge help whenever you do that. Um, and I very much appreciate it. Also, this post-fight special is brought to you by uh, the Beta Academy in Washington, D.C. If you're ever in the nation's capital and you need a place to train, whether it's strength and conditioning, jiu-jitsu, uh, or striking Muay Thai, go to the Beta Academy at 14th and Florida Northwest. There's a link to that academy in the description box below. It is where I'm a member. So, um, okay, with that out of the way, I also got to say thanks to all the folks who got me my new chair, the DX Racer, of my live chat. I didn't ask for any money, but they put it together. They sent it to me. I threw a little extra on top, and I got a really nice chair that gamers use. Without further ado, let's get to the results. If you're just joining me, here is how it went at UFC Fresno. Your main event, Cub Swanson, on the last fight of his current UFC deal, took a big risk, and he loses to Brian Ortega at 322 of the second round via guillotine choke. What can we say? Brian Ortega, boy, is he a talent or what? Number one, it is so great to see the featherweight division mature and advance, and you're seeing all of these young guys come through there. And yes, some of them, like A. Rodriguez, are stumbling along the way, but I fundamentally believe that this division once – you know, you know, Conor McGregor had his time there, but once he moved on and the rest of the division began to resettle, and now you've got Max Holloway, who's coming off of two back-to-back -back wins over the old guard, which is another key point here too, right? Cub Swanson, long time, you know, veteran of this weight class and still very, very good. It's sort of new guard pushing out the old guard. You're seeing that. Jose Aldo, I think if he moves to lightweight or, you know, took another fight at featherweight, he could probably still win, win some very competitive, good fights. But what are you seeing? You're seeing that new guard from featherweight push out that old guard. I really like seeing that. I have nothing against, of course, Cub Swanson or Jose Aldo. It's just really nice to see young, interesting, smart, capable talent not only mature and get better and get big wins, but you know, really assert themselves through uh, struggle, assert themselves through this, 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 um, you know, circle of life as it was, you know, divisions have these long time presences and they get pushed out by the new ones who really are the ones who excel. And, and that's exactly what you're seeing at featherweight. And it's really, um, a lot of fun. Now with that out of the way, Brian Ortega, I mean, look, look at this guy's UFC career, right? So he wins against Mike De La Torre. It's overturned because he did pop for, um, uh, Joe standalone. But then he goes and he fights Tiago Tavares, right? And he was only out a year for that, by the way, which is exactly how it should be. He comes back. He beats Tiago Tavares with a TKO in the third round. Then he beats Diego Brandao in 2016. Triangle choke, third round. KO from a knee in a fight he was losing against Clay Guida uh, uh, in 2016. 
uh, wins in the third round. Hanato Moicano, I was there for this at UFC 214. A very tough fight. He was probably losing that one as well, and he wins. Now, here is where it brings us to Cub Swanson. By the way, he gets a guillotine choke. Nearly had an anaconda choke in this. He has a triangle choke win in the UFC as well. What does that tell you? He's not only good with his arms and setting up various chokes, um, you know, he's got a great guard too. And so when you have that kind of positional um, submission dexterity, you're looking at somebody who's a real talent with what they're able to do. Brian Ortega is nasty, super nasty. Now in this fight with Cub Swanson, here's sort of what my read on this was. The, the striking of Brian Ortega continues to improve. Um, I am seeing lots of improvement every time. Nothing dramatic, but what do you want to say? Noticeably incremental? I think we, is a fair way to put it. Um, but he was basically going tit for tat with Cub. You know, one guy would set something up, faint, fake, bump, rip to the body, you know, fake, fake, catch him with a left. And, you know, it's almost like they're playing tennis. Like I hit it to you, you hit it to me, I hit it to you, you hit it to me. And it's, it's real relatively even. It was when Cub made the switch where sometimes Cub gets a little bit um, positionally, you know, he extends himself. Or he gets a little bit one note where he'll go, you know, with one really big shot. But one, but I've noticed Cub sometimes that gets him into trouble. But sometimes when he just really begins to lean on his power and his willingness to throw with that kind of oomph, that he has a lot of really good success. Not always. Sometimes he can be countered for it. But sometimes he just really goes out there and just starts banging on people. And I think when you saw that, it begins to wear on some of his opponents, particularly some of the younger guys. Right? They're just not accustomed to that kind of a presence a physical you know cub is a very physical featherweight in that sense um and i think it was beginning to wear on ortega a little bit he was catching him hard with rot shots to the body uh he was catching him stepping off at certain angles uh with both lefts and rights and he was really beginning to bang on him but you saw at the end of that first round he can from the front headlock he can jump to anaconda you know, the thing about it, when a guy's like that, you know, when someone says, oh, he has a good triangle choke or he has a good guillotine, that could actually mean a lot of different things. You know, you can have a good triangle because you can strike very quickly and, you know, put your legs in position to where they need to be. Or it could mean that you don't necessarily do that, but you have a lot of different setups and you can find a triangle choke from a lot of different directions, right? It can mean a lot of different things, actually. And the same goes for a Darce or a Bravo or whatever. But um, the two things that stand out to me about Brian Ortega's ability to land a submission is one, um, you know, he constantly he 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 attempts it from very common setups and tie-ups, right? In the clinch, you know, all you have to do is really sort of jump an arm over the top. This is a very common scenario because you'll see guys dig under the chin to prevent a takedown. They might dig, they might drop a hand and go for an underhook. You know, they they're they're, they're going to find ways to get you know the back of their arm over the back of the crown of your head, which is really essential for a guillotine to be successful, a Jeff Glover notwithstanding. Um, so he, he uses common tie-ups and common setups to find his submissions. So he's sort of smart in that sense, right? Let me see if I can set up a submission from a place I'm probably going to find myself in to a fair degree. That's one. The other one is he is able to lock his arms in position very, very quickly. Very quickly. He can just... You know, a guillotine, it takes years to practice and find exactly, like, where's the best place for me? What's the best grip? Is it over the blade of the hand? Is it over the wrist? You know, what what cues am I looking through when I shoot an arm through? Where should I feel it on my bicep? It takes time to find the grooves, right, to, to get the key to slide into the lock. It's not automatic. It looks automatic because a guy like Brian Ortega makes it look that way. It's not. It takes time, and some guys are not that way. You know, they, they'll have a good guillotine. They'll have a really good squeeze, but 
but they'll have to like inch their way into position, you know. Um, especially you'll see that with a three quarter stack, you know, where a guy's coming and they'll gable grip behind a guy's head, or yeah, they'll gable grip behind a guy's head and then force the head under, right, from behind the elbow as well and turn them. The three quarter stack is common, and then they'll shoot the arm through slowly once they have the head controlled. Uh, um, that's how um, Hanato Sobral Babalu won on uh, during his affliction fight. Three quarter stack, shoot the arm through, but you, it didn't happen all at once. It actually, it, it's it's a it's a series of advancements. Brian Ortega can just right into it, right into it. You know, um, it makes it look effortless. It's it, it's so funny. Like that's what's amazing about Brian Ortega's submissions. He makes them look like they're kind of easy to get. And they're not, you know, jumping guillotine like that. Where you know, again, one of the there's a lot of things you're looking for with a guillotine setup, but the, one of the major ones is how far are they behind the crown of the head? You know, you want to be really forcing that neck down. Um, and a lot of guys aren't that great at it. And Brian Ortega is really good at it. Like even if he loses the guillotine, um, you know, because it's going to be hard to get in a really tough guys. And, and Cub Swanson actually, I think he's a black belt, right? Like he has a really good ground game. Um, he might lose it. Or you know, go or like or like the first round, the belt saved him. But nevertheless, he he rarely ever gets it where the guy just pops his head out. At least not anymore. You know that tells you something. He's positionally, man, he's up in there. And for his, you know, for him to just so effortlessly find the key, sliding into the groove, you know, to open the door is is he makes it look like he's walking through his front door. And what he's really doing is, you know, climbing a slippery hill. It's that that's what you're looking at there. That's it, it, very, very, very impressive by young Brian Ortega. Boy, that is that is something to watch. So um, an incredible win by him. Easily the best one of his UFC career. I mean, those other ones are great, too. The one against Clay Guido was, you know, hard fought and, and not easy to come by. But um, and he was losing it. So in that sense, there's this momentous note about the change of fortune. But in terms of just. You know, he never let the fight. He, I think Swanson was wearing on him a little bit with the heaviness of his strikes, but the the fight never really got out of hand for him. And um, you know, just leaning on his jujitsu. I mean, there's a big question of, you know, how much do you want to lean on your jujitsu as a as a pathway to victory versus you know putting it a little bit in the back seat so you can mature your other skills. And I think in some of the fights he hasn't gotten that balance right. I think he got the balance much better this time around, much better driving a knee to the midsection of Swanson. So Swanson will come down and try to reach for it. As he does, whoop, right behind the head. You know exactly where your arm needs to be to slide in the key into the keyhole, right? He does that, and then he was able to readjust in midair. I'm not. I'm actually a little bit less impressed by the readjustment midair. If you, it's not that it's not impressive. It's very impressive, obviously, okay? We're talking about you know, degrees of how impressive it is. But you actually see that a little bit kind of commonly in sport jiu-jitsu if you watch enough of it. So in that sense, it's not all that unusual. I think, again, to me, the thing that's the most unusual about it is the ease with which he can just slide his arms like it's nothing, and he has exactly all the right cues about where he needs to be. I mean, if you're – you know, you saw who had the other – who had the oh um, who was it? We'll talk about this person later. But somebody else tried it in the was it Alex Perez? Who was it? The anaconda choke. I think he tried it in the first round or something like that, and he couldn't get it because oh that's right because he gator rolled, but it wasn't you didn't have the he didn't have the abdomen up against um, the head enough, and it was in the second time where he was able to get it. 
or I think I think that's right. Um, yeah, now I can't remember. Well, in any case, I believe that is correct. Um, you know, he didn't quite have it at first, and 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 you could say, well, you know, Brian Ortega didn't have it against Cub, but he did kind of have it against Cub. Cub just kind of. You know, just waited it out. He that was, you know, he he was grimacing and looking bad. And there's a big question about whether Ortega would have been able to finish that. Um, that's not exactly the same as trying it and not really getting it because there's really nothing there, or at least not not as much there. Um, and then you know, trying it a second time when of course I think he was getting it. It, it was one of those fights. I can't remember if it was exactly that one, but you get the idea. Uh incredible, incredible by him. Now that leaves us with, with Cub Swanson. Boy, he took a risk on this one, didn't he? Mm. You know, I don't know. I mean. You never want to get too emotionally invested in a fighter, but Cub's been around a long time. He was on my radio show, and and I, because I, we were talking about when Frankie Edgar had first fallen out of the 218 fight with Max Holloway, you'll recall that he was part of the sweepstakes about who was going to get that contest. Would it be Cub Swanson or would it be Jose Aldo? In the end, of course, it was Jose Aldo. But if you talk to Cub, he really thought, thought he, he, he deserved that fight. He was on a four-fight win streak heading into this contest. And the way he explained it to me was like he just wanted the UFC to show him that he, that he mattered to them. You know, like all the stuff he's done for them and all the all the wars he's been in, all the ways he's fought. You know, Cub, Cub's not really in boring fights. And um, and it didn't go his way, you know. Um, he even said he would have taken that fight um, and, and then signed a new deal if they had given it to him. Um but he didn't, so he took a risk taking on a young, young stud like Brian Ortega, and came up bad for him. You know, it didn't come up great. Um, I think he still has some value to the UFC, but this is going to make negotiating kind of hard. Will he go to Bellator? I don't know. Bellator's got some decent featherweights. You know, they got some great featherweights even. Um, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen with Cub Swanson, but for sure, if you're Cub Swanson tonight, you, you gambled and you know it didn't go his way. So. You have to kind of feel for him too, man. That's a that's a bitter pill to swallow. Um, got the brand new baby girl, and you know he's made some money in his life, but I think he wanted to make some real, like last chapter Michael Bisping last chapter kind of career money, and this definitely, definitely, definitely puts that on a bit of a setback. So, you know, he fought ably, he fought ably for a while, but if a guy can just lock up a submission so quick from common tie ups and you know, you, you don't even have, I mean, that's the point about like, why is the submission so good? He's, he's able to like, sl again, slide the key into the groove and get a lock on before you're even able to like bring your hands up to hand fight because you're aware you're in peril. So, I mean, everyone's going to go agaga over adjusting in midair. That's cool. That's super cool. But that's not what is going to make him a submission threat in the next contest or as much anyway finding a sub from a common tie up and then just and then locking it on like that that is that that's what's going to separate him from the rest of the pack because they'll jump guillotine and they're just not going to have the same kind of hold and maybe they'll get it because they can just crank it you know he can just chunk, chunk, and you're and you're super boned at that point pretty incredible gabriel benitez defeating jason knight two 30 26s and a 29 27 it's a bizarre kind of scorecard um well the problem is Jason Knight, of course, having a 10-8 first round for biting the fingers of Gabriel Benitez. I don't really know what the issue with that. I mean, he says it was accidental. I don't know how you accidentally bite someone's fingers, but I suppose there's a way. Um, not a great performance from Jason Knight. You know, there's a big question now, but maybe he came back from that 
Ricardo Lamas beating a little too early. He seemed a little, a little listless. That southpaw stance from Gabriel Benitez, he was on his feet the whole time. A um, couple times, you know, uh, Knight was able to land the straight right. But for the most part, I thought it was Benitez who was sticking and moving, landing, getting out of the way. He was turning on angles as well, you know, catching him with a shot, pivoting, and then catching him with another one. It was pretty, pretty great to see. Um, he was able to slide out of the pocket as Jason Knight would, like, double jab into the pocket. And then as he slid back, throw a head kick as he extended. I mean, the timing on it was sensational right really good timing and there was actually one timing on one of the times on jason knight's takedown that was really good as well but not um it just wasn't enough and even you know the takedown defensive gabriel benitez you know some of these guys who came from the ultimate fighter of latin america they burned out and flamed out like you thought they would but a couple of these guys man they have stuck around and they have definitely gotten better typically it's ones that have come to the united states or gone to some kind of super camp outside of their native country typically there, there probably is an exception here or there um, but there is some of that, and uh, he's fantastic. He's fantastic. That was a really strong performance um, by him. So not able to put Jason out away despite being able to land at will. I don't know if that was necessarily the best look, but again, somebody who's developing his skills uh, like that, um, you know, it'll be fun to watch. As for the point being taken from Knight, I don't really have an issue with it, man. I'm all in favor of referees just getting involved and forcing action and affecting contests. And there's going to be inevitably, and there was even on this card at a time where someone's going to do that and it's going to fuck with the integrity of the product. I, I understand that. Like there are going to be times where we're going to empower referees to fix what's happening between two stalling fighters or, you know, whatever the case may be. And they're going to make the wrong call. Um, but I think, generally speaking, we have missed the boat and the plot a little bit on this one. Fundamentally, when the referee can help, you know, yes, they have to make prudent choices, but fundamentally, if they can help in driving action in a meaningful and appropriate way, this makes the product better. And so part of that is, look, you bite a guy, I'm not going to, I mean, what you, I'm not going to give you a warning for biting a guy. You're just going to take a point. Like, that's it. Fine. That's good. I have no problem with that. I have no problem with that whatsoever, man. Whatsoever. So. Um, tough night for Jason Knight. And again, you know, maybe he came back from that Ricardo Lamas loss a little too early. Maybe not. Ricardo Lamas is fighting next week. You know, both are on similar timelines, but you know, one of those guys in the last fight was handing out an ass whooping and one guy was, you know, really taking a lot of damage and coming back like this. I would like to see him. He just got a little one note, you know, constantly pressuring in linear ways. He was circling a little bit in sort of interesting angles, but not enough. Um, and because Benitez was so mobile in the pocket and able to read um, the sort of more basically structured shot selection of Jason Knight, he got he got tuned up for it. How about Marlon Morice defeating Aljamain Sterling 107 in the first round via KO knee? Whoa, whoa! That was I mean uh, Greg Savage I think was in attendance and he was tweeting that they had to and I hope he's okay of course, but. Apparently, they had to get Aljamain Sterling out of there on um, a backboard because he was so viciously KO'd. Um, so, of course, let's just be honest about this. Let's say, and appropriate, and not savages, I hope Aljamain Sterling is okay, obviously. Um, 
with that important and, and necessary caveat out of the way, what a win for Marlon Marais. What a month for Marlon Marais, man. You know, they threw this guy to the Wolves when he came here. He was a champion. He's still 29 years old. They threw him to the Wolves. This guy was, you know, obviously on a tear. He hadn't lost to Torres Vicius. Davidus Torres Vicius since 2011. He just goes in this incredible win streak. Then he loses a very, very tough fight in his UFC debut against Rafael Sunsound. Now, you can say that the fight was a split decision with John Dotson at UFC Norfolk, but I thought he won that pretty cleanly. And then that was only November 11th. 30 days later, he goes and viciously KO of the year contender KOs Aljamain Sterling. I mean, brutally. It looked to me like he threw it, uh, like it was going to be a middle kick and then and then met him at the head, but also looked to me like Sterling was ducking into it, perhaps for like a level change or even even just a fake or a feint. Uh, and he got crushed, man. The two just came into each other, and um, it was a bad loss, man. Whoa, that was a really bad loss. This is a bit of a – I mean, two things are happening here at Bantamweight. Number one, this card sort of served as a reminder of just how much – bantamweight is also like lightweight where even guys now these are guys at the top of the division but i just want to point out here there was the morais sterling fight there was lopez morales there was sukmentat luke sanders perez versus de thomas uh signs versus uh the then you had perez versus alcantara all bantamweight contests all evidence of the fact that bantamweight like lightweight is an incredibly deep um division where guys, yes, in this case, are on top of the division, but all the way down, those were some sick fights too with very, very difficult struggles. But back to Marais, what a win for this guy. Now, he didn't exactly call anybody out afterwards, so it's not clear what they're going to do with him. But, um, you know, he was physically like muscling uh, Aljamain Sterling around in there a little bit, which surprised me because Aljamain Sterling is, he's a little wiry, but he's obviously a very, very good athlete. So I couldn't believe that. Um, smart game plan stuck to his strengths. He had hurt him earlier backed up off and then just timed it knee as the guy was as, as sterling was uh, for whatever reason i have to go back and watch the tape ducking into it F incredible 30 days you know you have like like if a guy is in a fight where he doesn't take a ton of abuse and basically wins and then he fills in on short notice later that's probably fine but if you get like choked out or you get banged out with elbows you know, trying to do it two weeks later against another top hungry-ass contender like Michael Bisping did, probably not the best idea, but this time it's totally different. Um, you know, tough for Aljamain Sterling to get a fight like this on where uh, you know, everything changes in the last minute, but he took it, and I, I, I respect him for taking it, but that did not go the way he needed to. It's been a bit of a, I mean, I wouldn't say it's been a bit of a rough run for Sterling because that's not true, but he's 28 years old, and this has been his last, you know, he had... Let's see, he started off in the UFC with one, two, three, four wins. But since then, he had that weird Brian Caraway loss where he was dominating early and just kind of faded over time. Then he also lost a very close split decision to Rafael Sunso, which is understandable. Rafael Sunso doesn't necessarily make you look good and is hard to beat. He has a great win over Tanquinho, Augusto Mendez. He had that sensational win over Henan Barral, but that was at 140, which really left the Barral. So he's lost three of his last five. He's won two of his last three, however you want to look at that. But I was talking to Patrick Wyman. I thought he made a really great point. He was saying the Brian Caraway loss is just a classic prospect loss. I mean, we're going to talk about Vasily Lomachenko. Now, he had a ton of amateur experience, but even he had an early loss in his professional career where, you know, you could say sometimes these guys, as they get their feet wet from amateur to pro, 
sometimes make some errors that they'll never repeat, but in the process of beginning to become a professional fighter can slip up a little bit. And and I sort of agreed, and I still think that's true, but it also sort of stands to reason that as much development as Sterling has made on the feet, um, in terms of his bantamweight peers, you look at the top of the division, like all those dudes can strike. All those dudes can strike. And I'm not saying Aljamain Sterling can't. That's not at all what I'm saying. But there's a certain level of uh, power punching and an ease with which that portion of the game comes to them where it's a little bit more, well, I think I think Sterling's a more natural player on the ground. The striking is good, but a work in progress. You know, you look at Dillashaw, look what he can do on the feet. Cody uh, Garbrandt, look what he can do on the feet. Dominic Cruz, maybe not necessarily a power puncher, but certainly on the feet has a very, very difficult style to to deal with. Now you got Marlon Rice at the top of that. He just beat John Dotson, who's really a flyweight, but he can also crack like that. At the top of that division, you got you got you got guys who aren't just power punchers and power strikers, but very very technical trap setters, guys who can switch stances, slide in the pocket, who can slip, turn angles. You know, you really got to be able to play with them on that level there. And they've got great takedown defense too. Cody Garbrandt's got takedown defense. Dominic Cruz has takedown defense. T.J. Dillashaw has takedown defense. Marlon Marais has takedown defense. So, man, you, if you can't play with them on that level, it's going to be really hard to advance past that. So let's be clear, 28 years old, Aljamain Sterling has a lot of time to get better. He has a lot of uh, room for growth. But as it stands now, while he's very exceptional and we should not let this one uh, admittedly terrible loss define him, it should – the bantamweight picture is becoming a little bit clearer now where the guys who are really ruling the upper crust of it, they can wrestle and – they are not just wrestle boxers, but the next level of that, where they wrestle strikers who are also power strikers when they need to be. Um, you know, even TJ Dillashaw wouldn't. I mean, is he is he known for like crippling power? No, but he finds such incredible openings that he ends up almost becoming one. And he can he can a John Lineker top of that division power puncher, right? There's a lot of really 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 heavy capable strikers who are very difficult to get to the ground. You've got to be able to play with them there. You know that's going to be a real big hurdle for Sterling to get over. But I'm, I mean, how can how can you not be excited about? We're talking about how it's great to watch all this new blood come into featherweight. But featherweight's got guys who are kind of all over the map in terms of what they can do, which is great. I mean, every every, every division is going to have its own unique complexion character at the top. But bantamweight, wow, these fucking guys are really incredible. Um, you know, as I mentioned, good jujitsu if they need it, but they typically don't. S substantially good anti-wrestling um, or wrestling when they need it. Like you have TJ Dillashaw hitting those outside trip, like trip doubles, you know, where you shoot a double and then the, the front leg, the penetration leg wraps around the foot of them. And then they, you sort of call, you crash with them and he gets that. Uh, if that, that division is all of a sudden pretty, pretty awesome. Um, there were two fights I had a little harder time watching Scott Holtzman versus Daryl Horcher. Scott Holtzman winning a unanimous decision. And then Eric Anders versus Marcus Perez uh, or Perez. I didn't watch. Okay. So I watched both of them while I was watching Lomachenko Rigando, which is to say, I obviously paid a lot more attention to Lomachenko Rigando than those two. Holtzman looked to be just sort of physically getting Horcher across, uh, against the fence and taking him down. I have to go back and watch it. And Anders looked to be just like beating him up on the feet. And then they would go to the ground and pound him out there. Perez did not have, it appeared to me, much for Anders. So um, nice win by him. And and Holtzman um, looked like he was just sort of the physically imposing force there. But I'll have more to say for them on the Monday morning analyst on MMA fighting on Monday. So, uh, And then Benito Lopez defeating Albert Morales. 
28. Three flying knees landed in the first round. <laughs> and and somehow then he gets dropped or wobbled, and they just go back and forth. Uh, this was a case where Morales, this was this is where a case where you could call for referee intervention because they were just doing this crazy striking. And then Morales, remember, in collegiate wrestling, you know, locked hands in certain positions can be a penalty, especially from referee's position, right? Where someone is down on all fours, you go and you grab the elbow and the waist, they do the whistle. Guy on underneath, if he escapes, gets a point, right? And so that's called referee's position. And from there, the locked hands off the initial break is not allowed because if you can lock your hands behind someone on their waist, it's very, very difficult to break that. You can hold it for a long time, but that's legal in MMA. I mean, there's no referee's position, but just sort of standing or or if you're both kneeling behind and holding that, that's that's okay. And I think that that's fine, but the referee should, should realize that that position is so powerful. It's like a Kimura grip. A Kimura grip is very it's a very powerful grip, yeah? That's why a lot of people are tempted to do it because if they hold it, you can control that arm really easily. Now, you know, whether or not you could do something with it is a separate story, but it's, a, it's, it's intoxicating because it's such a powerful grip. Same thing getting behind someone's waist. So that referee getting involved at the end of that first round, he kind of waited a little bit. Um, by the way, it was great to see Josh Rosenthal back generally on this card and, um, you know, refereeing. He's a very good referee. But uh, anyway, so it doesn't matter. Lopez got the job done ultimately in the end. I think just be by being a little bit more clever as a striker, um, and a little bit more active. He, he kind of faded there at some points. Um, in the second round, I thought he was kind of taking some time off third round too a little bit. But he was just able to land with a little bit. I mean, there was a little bit more effort from Morales, but there was a little more power and precision from Lopez in the end. Um, so it's, that's why he takes it. So that is our main card. If you're still watching me, give me a thumbs up. Subscribe below. I also appreciate that when you guys do. Well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go through the prelim card, and then I'm going to get to the uh, Rigando and Lomachenko fight uh, at the end. Because um, I just, I mean, this is an, I, I predominantly cover MMA, so I need to make sure that I prioritize that for you guys. Uh, okay, Alexis Davis defeating Liz Carmouche. Uh, this ended up being a uh, split decision win for Alexis Davis. She nearly had a couple of submissions there. Her arm bars are fantastic. You know, we talked about how bad the arm bar defense was at the Ultimate Fighter 26 finale, and it was it was really not great at all. Um, Carmusha's defense was not like super technical, but it was powerful in terms of trying to shake Davis off, and it was patient. You know, she didn't panic. So, and you know, Davis, if someone has you in a deep arm bar, I mean, you know, you, you go back to the Kurt Osiander thing. Like, if you're caught in someone's triangle. You know, you fucked up a long time ago. And I'm not saying Liz Carmouche fucked up, but I'm just saying Davis puts you in a position where you're now fucked up. You know, the, the question is how you get out of that is, well, we don't get into it. So because once you're once you're that far gone, it's not easy to get out of it. And there was one moment, where I think it was that second round, where she had it from the overhook with the leg and pressing out with the hips. And that arm looked to be, like, in bad shape, but she came out. And also, Liz Carmouche, man, she's always been strong. I know they call her Gorilla. She had that one Osoto Gari where she just slammed uh, Davis to the mat, but Davis, man, her hips underneath phenomenal. And I really love the one thing where she had, she had, by the way, she got passed once and then was able to go, go, you know, fairly quickly recapture guard, which I really appreciate from her. But more than that as well, she was underneath one time. Uh, I think it was the third, I think the very end of the fight, as a matter of fact. And she goes to that Kimura grip because it feels intoxicating, but switches, but she keeps, you, you know, so you would grab the wrist, you'd go over their arm. And you'd grab your own arm, right? No thumbs on the Kimura, yeah? Um, you're not supposed to, anyway. A lot of people do, but you're not supposed to. 
Uh, so what she does is she goes over that, but instead of having this hand grab and grabbing her own, she just took the hand that was coming over to grab it and then posted on the other hand and then hit an upa sweep where you just basically you drive your hips up into them, bump them over, block, and then turn. So, you know, all sweeps kind of work the same way. You're blocking one side, um, and, you're, and by blocking, I mean you're, you're preventing them from posting or using any kind of blocking mechanism, and then you go to that side, right, because they can't block it anymore. You're blocking them. So she uses that Kimura grip, the switched Kimura grip, to then hit the Upa sweep to turn her gets on top and begins to bang her out. That is, that is really nice stuff, man. Really nice stuff. You know, the, if you can just, if you have strong hip flexors, right? A lot, of, okay, so you've seen these dudes who go to the gym and they'll get on that machine where they put their elbows here and then they swing their legs up, right? 99.9, I had a personal trainer show me this once, 99.9% .9 of people do that wrong. Um, which isn't to say there's not a value to doing it, but they do it wrong. When you do that, uh, the, you know, sort of leg raise, uh, from that, it's, it's not a machine, but it's just a contraption where you can, you know, you can post on your, you use your lats to engage and your elbows down, and then you bring your legs up, right? People think it's working their abs. But what they commonly do is they just kind of bring their legs up to their chest, or they'll bring their knees to their chest, or their legs out in front. That is really, that's going to work your hip flexors, and that's great, especially for jujitsu. But if you want to work your abs, you actually have to come up and then show your rear end a little bit. I know that sounds super not awesome, but it's true. The crunch you're using your hip flexors to here and then the abs, right? The people just do this. They just use their hip flexors, but there is a value to strengthen your hip flexors, especially if you're going to be a bit of a guard player. And Alexis Davis has that. Uh, Andre Sukmantat defeating Luke Sanders, 106 of the second round. So there was some debate about this stoppage. Here's what I thought. Look, personally, I thought if Josh Rosenthal had let it go a little bit longer, I'd have been okay with it. I was not particularly upset about it. However, in going back and watching it, there's a moment where they go to the ground, and then after a series of strikes, Sanders, he was still scrambling, but he does belly out, and he got hit with a vicious right hand from Sukmantat. I mean, he spun his head like it was an owl, like just turning around. Um, so he hits him with a tremendous shot. He goes down, and then there was another series of shots, culminating one that kind of bellied him out. Now, he still kind of collected himself after that and kept moving. So I was like, you probably could have let it go longer, but it's a entirely justifiable stoppage. I think that's the that's the appropriate way to con consider it here. You know, there are degrees of good and there are degrees of bad. You can judge how good this was. We can have a debate about that. But was it a bad stoppage? It was not a bad stoppage. There's, there's no argument for that. Now, as I mentioned, Sukman Tot, who is a great striker, who has sometimes had some difficulties bringing that to bear in the octagon did not have any difficulties today at least not with that that final series an excellent one i've been very impressed by the not merely the tenacity but the overall technical game of luke sanders um but sukman just was better in that tight space and kind of better at range for a lot of these fights as well sanders is better like especially in this contest tightening things up and, and getting a little bit closer but sukman really had his had his way in the end uh alex perez defeating carl's john de tomas and the Kondachuk, 154, this guy was doing great work with, um, you know, riding from on top on turtle with inside wrist control, right? Uh, using it like Khabib style, shoot the hand through, grab the, you can do either same side or cross side wrist, doing it, forcing their posture down, banging on them, right? And then the one thing was he, if, if you, if, okay, so let's say we're standing, you shoot on me and I sprawl and I'm on top. There's a way where there's a lot of different techniques you can do it. But what I want to do is I want to put my weight 
the center of my chest on your back or neck or whatever, but I want to I want to weigh on you, want to carry your weight, and I want to get around to this back slash side of you, and I have to beat whatever arm is I'm heading towards. So if I'm on top, you shoot, I sprawl. Now I'm on top, right? I got to go that way, or I have to go this way. But you're gonna put up an arm one way or the other. And he kept trying to go to his own left, and De Tomas kept putting an arm up and kept blocking and kept blocking and kept blocking. So he said, fuck it. I'm not going to go that way anymore. I'm just going to sit for a guillotine on the same side. And then, or it ended up being, I think he could have converted it to an anaconda choke at the end. But he sits it up as almost like an arm in, same side arm in guillotine. And then he rolled through and then it finished it like an anaconda. But um, that was clever. You know, he had, a, you know, credit to De Tomas to, to stop it. But then you have to stop it and then react and not get yourself in there in so many situations. Finally, Perez was able to, to work around it. So nice adjustment from Perez. Uh, Frankie Steins defeating Marab Devalish Feely, uh, the Georgian kid, 29-28, 28-29, 29-28. So a split decision victory there. God, what a, what a horribly uh, taxing contest to watch. I don't mean it was bad, but you know, it was, the amount of wrestling in that back and forth was just – I mean, I couldn't believe the kind of things they were able to do in terms of these on these like endless scrambles that these guys were able to go through. Again, another bantamweight contest. Um, I'll have more to say about that in the Monday Morning Analyst. Alejandro Perez defeating Yuri Alcantara, 30-27-29-28. Alcantara not really getting very busy. Kind of surprising. P Perez not getting very busy either, but he at least did enough to win. Davi Ramos defeating Chris uh, Grutzmacher. Submission rear naked choke at 50 of the third round. It was insane what he did. Davi, or Davi, it's spelled Ramos, but I guess it's pronounced Hamesh, Hamosh. It's like, oh, like Hamesh Rodriguez or something. Um, how did he win? In the end, he had his back, same thing, tight waist, you know, with a gable grip, which is just a nightmare to deal with. He does. He picks him up for uh, he, he. So what does he want to do? You want to create two different angles of motion, right? So he sends him up to create space, to send him one way, to then send him back for a mat return to the mat. So as he's sending him back to the mat return, he does a halfway back take and then slides the choke, yanks him off of his base. As he yanks him off of his base, then he finishes the back take, and by that point, he had the bicep grip and then behind the head. A lot of guys will put it on here so that the person can just fight it down. Davi Ramos, Davi Hamosh, Hamesh, whatever, is so good, he naturally puts it here. So then you're just dead to rights at that point. You can't you can't pull that past your own head, right? Um, and he locked it in immediately. You know, he he, he, he kind of faded there in a little bit in a second. I'll say Grootsmacher really surprised me with how tough he is and, frankly, how good his takedown defense was. I was also kind of surprised by that. What was really saving Davi was the fact that if he could get a shot, he was able to turn on angles constantly, right? If I just power double you back, I have to pick you up to get you off of your feet and, and it's in a straight line it's going to be much easier for you to get up if i can get up and then turn or if i can a penetrate step and then turn they always teach you on a penetration step you're gonna you're gonna take a lead foot and they talked about it you don't necessarily have to go to the knee pound but you can go knee pound and then that trail leg is going to come up and then step off at an angle right you can walk forward and backwards relatively easily a lot harder for you to walk side to side your body's not really made for that. It's made for mostly forward, backward if necessary. But side to side is a little bit it's much more difficult. So that's why you want to shoot on one side and then cut the angle. And he could do that all the way around, like major rotations. It's, it's, so you're going to have a much higher degree of success on a takedown attempt to the extent you can rotate. And he got that. Um, but, you know, he makes some interesting choices because he'll go out there and slug it out with you. And he's not bad at it by any stretch of the imagination, but you just, you know, 
Matt return to halfway back take to choke to snatch off the base to full back take to completely locked in choke in like a matter of a second or something. You just begin to realize, yeah, okay, you're not bad at this, but it's definitely not your strong suit. And that clearly is. <laughs> like It's like Brian Ortega too. Now it's not quite as lopsided in terms of the skill set, but it's like Brian Ortega striking is absolutely coming along. There's no denying it. But then you look at his submissions, you're like, yeah, but that's where you're like the king of the hill. Same thing with, you know, you know, Davi Ramos, however you pronounce it. This guy won ADCC with a flying jump arm bar where the other guy was in sitting guard. The other guy's in sitting guard looking up, and I think it's what Davi Ramos did. He goes to grab the ankles. Like, if you're ever going to attack someone and they're sitting in guard, you know, one of the first things you want to do is you want to get their back to the mat, right? You want to get there. You, you, there's a lot of ways to do that. A lot of them commonly involved grabbing the ankles, and then you want to push them back. You want their back flat on the mat because if they're sitting up, they create a lot more offensive opportunities for themselves. So he fake threatens the ankle pull, and then when the guy comes up to bring his hands out, you know, to not only push his feet down, but then, you know, grab a hold, Ramos jumped armbar on him <laughs> to win ADCC. Like a shocking level of like guts and, you know, ferocity in a submission um, uh, prowess when, when you can do something like that. And, you know, I, that's why when you like Matt returned back take to choke through, through a, snatching a guy off his base, you're like, why are you fucking around with all this striking stuff when you're, you can do this? I don't, I don't quite get it, but he got the job done tonight. And it was actually Grootsmacher, a bit of a tougher guy than I gave him credit for. So um, he, he did a great job as well. And then Trevin Giles defeating Antonio Braga Neto, a, a very excellent black belt, 227 of the third round. You know, Braga Neto on the ground was kind of having his way with him a little bit. He was definitely – referee was like work, and I'm like, they're working, D-bag. But in the end, um, you know, he definitely won that first round. But you, you could see Giles had a really good jab. And in the second round – didn't really mess around when they clinched, separated, tried to get up. If there was any, I can't remember if he got him down exactly in the second temporarily, but he did a much better job of motioning, staying on his feet, you know, going side to side, never getting his back too close to the fence, and really working his jabs and his rights. And then by the third round, you could see Braganetto was a little bit defeated in his face. And same thing, Giles making the adjustment like, don't get clinch up, don't get your back against the fence, create separation. And when you're on your feet at distance, you know, pop him and move, stick him and move, work behind the jab and find the right hand when he begins to get his offense to drop. And he just, I think he absolutely crushed him with one and sat him down. But really strong performance at middleweight by Trevin Giles. Um, okay, so that would be UFC Fresno. Um, I appreciate you guys watching. If you're still with me, like it, subscribe to the channel. I know I keep saying it a lot, but it's actually really good for me when you do, obviously. And I'm trying to do more and more things with this channel, so I need your help to do that. I got my Juan Valdez. I don't have coffee, just water. Mmm. Very good. Um, so let's talk about the big boxing fight tonight. Um, Vasil or Vasily Lomachenko. What can you say about that guy? Um, here's what I'll say about him. Now, I had somebody challenged me on um, Twitter about this because they say he doesn't have enough fights yet, and that's fine. I can I'm I'm okay with that. Um, so he's ten and one. His second fight, he had the loss to Orlando Salido. This was back in 2014, but since then, he's absolutely just clowning people in a way that is, um, you know, hilarious. So here here's what I want to say. Let's see. 
one quick thing. I mean, 135 pounds, you know, he's he could take anyone at 135 pounds. Well, this was for what junior lightweight. Is that what this was? I believe the junior lightweight title. Yeah. Let me say something about Vasily Lomachenko. Lomachenko, in my judgment, is the best boxer currently alive and probably, or I should say, arguably, the most talented combat athlete. Now, if you want to not rank him pound for pound because he doesn't have enough of a body of work, I wouldn't really object to that. Uh, I would say that, A, tonight's win is historic over Guillermo Rigondeau. Rigondeau quitting on his stool after the sixth round, just saying, had enough. He would later identify a hand injury for the reason he did not want to continue, which we'll get to in just a second. But number one, you know, first time two uh, guys who had each won two gold medals in the Olympics were facing off in the history of boxing. Now, yes, Rigondeau was coming up a couple of weight classes, so Lomachenko was the bigger guy. But here's what I would say. Number one, tonight's win was historic. Um, number two, his peers talk about him like he does something that they've never seen. And we're talking about, you have to understand something about boxing that still separates it from MMA. Two things. Number one, boxing worldwide has a significantly higher global participatory rate in terms of the number of athletes competing in it, both, again, in its total history, obviously, but even still today. If you if you include the you know massive amateur system, it is much, much many, many, many more athletes involved in boxing relative to MMA. Okay, that's number one. Um, and number two, it's always, I lost my train of thought here for just a second, uh, historic win. And then two, so you have these peers who have seen him do, they, they've seen an incredible amount of, I mean, both of these guys had entered in here with, you know, hundreds, hundreds of amateur fights between them. And then, of course, these longer pro, well, these shorter, but these now current pro careers. And you've got guys like Timothy Bradley, who's been around the game for, you know, decades. And this guy he, he's saying he's doing things that no one else is, is doing or he's never even seen. The guy's like an android. If you think about an android that you programmed, if you could do such a thing, to do the perfect thing in every scenario. Now, that conceptually is almost incoherent, but just imagine for a second that that was possible. That's like what he does. Uh, it, this wasn't even close. This wasn't even close. Now, I had thought Lomachenko was going to win but I didn't know if it was going to look the way that it looked. He goes in there, and in the first round, a little bit harder to score. But even by the second, you could tell Rigondeau was getting desperate. He wasn't biting on all of the fakes and the feints and the traps that Lomachenko was setting to his credit. But at the same time, you know, the double overhook squeeze, not letting him get out, shots below the belt, having the point taken again. I know it's boxing. I have no problem for any of the points that were taken. Well, just the one that was taken against him. And to me, that was a clear sign of frustration. You know, not letting him go, tying him up. Yes, Rigondeau has been known as or Rigondeau has been known as a guy who wants to do less in a fight. He has complained about not being on television. People have complained about him being boring, all different kinds of things. Um, but he's really good at have a, uh, in terms of winning with a less is more approach. But this was like way less is not more, right? There's a, some, there's a fine line there and all of the frustration that was building. And then you just saw Lomachenko, I think from the third round on, just began to style on him. You want to talk about a guy who, I mean, it's like, what does Lomachenko do badly? I can't even think. I mean, oh my God. Like I had Paul Felder, when we were talking about Mayweather McGregor, Paul Felder was trying to make a point with me and we'll talk about his commentary in just a second. But Paul Felder was telling me things like, he's like, dude, just, just slip in a shot, just slip in a shot, right? Just that takes a long time to get good at. It's not an obvious thing. 
and Lomachenko was slipping to the outside early, like rounds two through three and four, effortlessly against the jab of Rigondeau. And then in rounds like five and six, slipping to the inside, giving him a totally different look, not being predictable. He does that well. His footwork is unbelievable. He's always in a place where he has a good angle on you and nearly your back sometimes. And he's got counters from there. Um, doubling, tripling up on the same punch with the same arm on the same side. You know, three uppercuts in a row, right? The jab was working for him perfectly. He was able to land it to the body a lot as well. So, I mean, what is he doing wrong? He's cutting angles. He is finding openings. He's working body and the head. Um, he's setting traps. He's able to create angles, creating counters from the pivots. Uh, I mean, there's nothing missing. There's nothing missing other than I guess he didn't get a big KO, but he didn't get a chance to get a big KO because Rigando said no mas. No, this doesn't doesn't he want? It didn't want no more. Uh, it, shocking! Like a, a fight on paper that you thought was intriguing, and you you would think would be. I, I mean, I had a concern going in that it was going to be a little bit boring because it was going to be so so com, you know uniquely competitive, and it wasn't very competitive at all. Who who's going to beat that guy? Who's going to beat that guy? I don't, you know, I guess he, unless he goes up, you know, a substantial amount of weight classes where, you know, whatever skill advantage he has is just negated by size. Okay. I guess then, um, and again, if you don't want to rank him pound for pound, because you have some kind of fealty to fighters having a broader body of work before you anoint them and some kind of formal ranking, that's fine. But if you're just asking me who quite clearly appears to be the most talented, who's more talented than that guy? Who can box like that? I don't think I've ever seen a boxer like that in my life, in any weight class. It's just a shocking level of total skill. Whatever the scenario is, it doesn't matter. Um, he just does things and finds openings and can put punches together in ways that take your breath away. Totally take your breath away. He had a two-time Olympian out there being like, I don't know what to do with this fool. I don't know what to do. Now, about that hand, here's what I'll say about it. There's been a lot of scenarios where, um, you know, fans say, and fans fans actually go both ways. I don't want to be, and media does this too. They go both ways too. But basically there are some people who are like, look, you know, the guy's hand's broken. What do you want him to do? You know, this is how he makes his money. You want him to go out there and fight in a fight where he knows he can't win with it? No, I don't think that I do. I think I would agree that if you know you're outmatched and your hand is fucked up, just call it a day, man. Live to fight another day, you know? Oh, so I'm fine on that. But you can also argue, while that's true, and I don't think I'm in a position to say a fighter has to continue if his hand is jacked up. However, there are just... Look, it's just reality. There are fighters who are perfectly willing to continue in those contexts. So I'm not exactly mad at Rigando for not wanting to continue to preserve his hand health because that's the way he makes money. On the other hand, you could argue if you wanted, it's not necessarily totally uncommon to see that. In addition, what you can also argue is that, okay, I, I'm not in a position as a fan to be like, you have to go and continue to perform with a hand in, in a fight where you know you don't have much of a chance of winning. But it didn't look like it was much of a spirited contest from him. You know, he was trying to be low energy, calm, think his way through the problems, but it didn't look like he competitively had much of a spirit in this. I'm not here to say that he wasn't trying hard. I'm just saying it didn't look like the most spirited effort from him that I'd ever seen. And, and again, he's a guy who does less is more, but then there's, there's less is more, and then there's like way less is 
not more. And that's kind of what we fell into today. It's like, no, I don't want to be mad at a guy who knows he's beat and his hand is jacked up. But if you had given me a lot more to look at in the first six rounds, I'd be a lot less upset about it. Or I'm not upset, but you know, I'd be a lot less, I'd be a lot more forgiving. I'm a, I'm a part of me is not as forgiving as I think some others might be because um, I just didn't see him really ever get out of second gear other than to fight dirty. So there's that. Now, last thing on this, and I want to say something about Paul Felder's commentary. I mentioned that I think he's the best combat athlete, the most talented combat athlete in all of um, sports today. Now, I don't know that to be a fact. That is an opinion. Um, and you can debate that. Uh, I, I can't say it with any clear certainty. I mean, I think that, but it is certainly a debatable position, right? You could say Mighty Mouse. You could probably pick out some kind of uh, Olympic judoka. You could pick out, you know, um, Kyle Snyder from American Wrestling. Or, you know, there's a lot of different ways you could go if you want to pick out somebody who has achieved as an um, extraordinary combat athlete. So that's debatable. Here is one thing, though, that I keep seeing from MMA fans that I, I cannot caution you more against. I have seen it's like, well, okay, Lomachenko is obviously really good, but he doesn't have to deal with kicks and punch or kicks and, you know, spinning back fists and takedowns. So I can't really rate him as highly as Demetrius Johnson. Now, again, we can have a debate about who's the best combat athlete in the world. I, I tend to think that the most talented one is Vasily Lomachenko, but you can make credible arguments for other ones. I'm perfectly willing to admit that. What I won't admit, though, is that the notion that because MMA involves a wider array of offensive options that it's by definition a more difficult sport to compete in. It can be that case, but there's a couple of factors we need to think about here. John Kavanaugh, who's the coach of Conor McGregor, was noting in the run-up to the Mayweather-McGregor fight that he felt like, look, you know, we actually feel like we're in a bit of an advantage here. We don't have to worry about jiu-jitsu heading into Mayweather fight. We don't have to worry about wrestling. We don't have to worry about kickboxing. We just have to worry about boxing. And that's true, right? Like you don't have to worry about all those other elements, but it's addition by subtraction. So in other words, yes, you don't have to worry about jujitsu or wrestling, but now you're entering into a world where you have decades upon decades upon decades of best practices where everybody in there is not just good at that, but I mean, they have fine tuned their weapons to the sharpest degree imaginable. Plus there are a lot of other conditions directly specific to that contest that while you may borrow some elements and bring it over to MMA, they don't exist in MMA. They exist there. So for example, if that doesn't make any sense. Think about jujitsu. If someone were to say to you, you like an MMA fight, you know, you have to worry about jujitsu. If I, you know, we, we, now that we're doing kickboxing, I don't have to worry about it, but uh, understand something or we're just worrying about jujitsu. If, if you're talking about MMA jujitsu versus pure jujitsu, think about this. You go to pure jiu-jitsu, now you have to worry about reverse De La Worm guard, Keenan Cornelius's deadlift cross choke. You have to worry about Baron Bolos. You have to worry about 50-50 guard. You have to worry about so many things that don't even exist in MMA. So many things that don't even... Imagine someone's like, I'm going to leave MMA and go jiu-jitsu. Now I don't have to worry about striking. Now I have to worry about wrestling. I can just pull guard if I want. Right, you're dealing with guys who, number one, are way better at jiu-jitsu than anyone over here at pure jiu-jitsu in the modern sporting context, and it's addition by subtraction. You're not only getting significantly better subject matter experts, you're getting subject matter experts who in that world have a set of uh, attacks and positions and defenses that are totally irrelevant to MMA. 
You know, this is why you don't see guys typically leave MMA and go and win the Mundials or ADCC. I mean, you might see a little bit of Nogi success, but you don't see that. more. And plus, those two worlds are deeply connected. You don't see anybody leaving MMA and going, imagine, you know what, I'm going to go wrestle. I'm going to try for the Olympic team. I don't have to worry about submissions. I don't have to worry about strikes. Right. Do you understand how different wrestling is and how, A, again, another sport that has an enormously high worldwide participatory rate, people do that it, that sport in significantly greater numbers worldwide. They start young. They have state support. You know, this notion that you're, because there's not kicks and punches, great. There are so many other setups, so many other takedowns, so many other leg laces and, and fleeing the mat points and, and warnings. It's a completely different scenario over there. It's not easier to, to box because there are no takedowns. Trust me. You have a sport with a huge participatory rate worldwide. You have a sport with state sponsorship. You have a sport with an enormous, huge, relative to MMA, amateur system. You have a sport where there are gradations all along the line that weed out talent. By the time you even get to the pro ranks, you are talking about someone who has a highly sophisticated skill set for a narrow, yes, narrower set of options, but even in that narrow space, include things that have nothing to do with your occupation in MMA. So look, maybe you think Demetrius Johnson is the best um, combat athlete alive, and we can have that debate. There's a great debate to be had about that we should. The only thing I must stress to you is it is not true at all that because there are no takedowns or kicks or whatever in boxing, that it's an easier sport to obtain success. It is not. There are two lifts as opposed to three in weightlifting versus powerlifting. But in weightlifting, you have state sponsorship. You have people starting at a young age. You have decades of best practices. It is a much more technical sport relative to powerlifting. You see guys in the back warming up and weightlifting events, back squatting other people's all-time PRs. Um, and it's for those reasons. It's the exact same scenario when you have a shitload more people doing it and you have state government sponsoring them and they're starting at a young age and they have way better best practices and they've got nutritionists and coach and they're being developed all on the way and there's these hugely developed systems. It is way harder to succeed even if there's only two lifts as opposed to three in powerlifting. The snatch is harder as a technical lift than the deadlift. The snatch is harder as a technical lift than the bench. The snatch is harder than a technical lift as the squat. Compare the squat to the clean and jerk. You have to you have to clean it front squat, then off the, you have to jerk it. It's it's like saying, well, because there's three lifts in powerlifting, it's harder. Nope, nope, it's not. It's still super fucking hard to do it in powerlifting, but it's not harder because there's three and then there's two. All right. So I'm trying to just explain. That. I hope that's clear. Let's debate who's the best, but trust me when I tell you. It's not true that boxing is easier to succeed in as a sport. It is, if anything, harder. Okay. If you have any questions, I will take them at L Thomas News on Twitter. We'll do some little Q&A, and then we'll uh, close the show here. Uh, someone says, will Aljamain ever have it? He's 28, moving into his prime, but he just seems to be a step behind the top guys in that division. So, again, so going back to it, um, he's got to work on that striking. He has got to find a way to – I mean, I – it just need, he needs he needs to be able to handle that in a more um, you know if you can't handle power punchers who have lights out takedown defense you're just going to be in trouble at bantamweight unless he can cross that bridge and look he's 28 he's he's young he's athletic and he's with a good team I would very much not count out Aljamain Sterling just yet that being said we have to be sober about the challenge ahead and that's that's a big one. 
I was in attendance tonight. That Aljo KO was terrifying. Yeah, man, that looked really bad. I hope he's okay. Someone says it's too early for Zabit because I said I wanted Zabit and Mega Man Sharapov versus Brian Ortega, but someone says I think it will happen eventually. Yeah, I do too. Um, let's see. By the way, Cub Swanson, these are two guillotine finishes, but the time that Holloway did it, he had a broken jaw. Just keep that in mind. Yeah, we're going to look at his jujitsu on the Monday Morning Analyst. Ryan Ortega's ability to ride Swanson while readjusting his guillotine was superb. Who else have you seen that from a strong flying guard? Edwin, Na uh, Edwin Najmi is more of a guard jumper, but guys like that do things like that all the time. They'll jump guard and readjust once they have it. So if you watch sports jiu-jitsu, again, I'm not saying it's not amazing. It's amazing. But it's a little bit more common to me and less of an impressive feat than just naturally finding grooves in instance. That, to me, is, is just like beyond impressive um when ortega is jumping for these submissions what do you think the risk to reward ratio is for him in the moment it almost seems like he knows it'll work well wouldn't you know if it'll work if you can lock up something so quickly you know um he knows it's going to work because he knows what are the if whenever, in order to get a submission you have to establish certain conditions and that's what i mean where it's usually like a process to establish them ortega can just in one go it's 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 amazing. It's amazing. Um, talking about Cub Swanson, someone says he's someone I really don't know what happens next for him. He's not the biggest name and just lost, but he's a top featherweight and it's fun to watch. Bellator could definitely use a fresh featherweight. So Pitbull, Strauss, Vichel don't have to keep fighting each other. Does he stay in the UFC or go to Bellator? I, I suspect he'll stay, but it's really hard to know, man. Really hard to know. An awesome fight, but if Lamas gets by Emmett, Lamas versus Ortega in a number one contenders fight would be sick too. Totally agree. Great call. It's a great call. Um, his coach, Henry Gracie, should start calling him G-City, guillotine. Yeah, maybe he should. That was pretty amazing. Uh, anything else here at L. Thomas News? Probably not. All right, so I got some questions in. I appreciate it. You guys? Thank you so much for watching. If you have any questions, email me LukeThomasNews at gmail.com. Um, I can be reached there. You can follow me on Twitter at LThomasNews. All this information is down below. Facebook.com slash LukeThomasNews. Instagram, I'm at LukeThomasNews. So, you know, come find me, guys. Thank you guys so much for watching. I really appreciate it. It is, what time is it? It's 2.09 in the morning. Until next time, get some sleep.